0: Now, the uh, the the title of this talk is The Purpose of Life. Uh, it's the title that I was asked to speak on, and it's a great pleasure to be able to think about these large questions, even in a relatively short span of time. Now, in English, we use the word purpose in two main senses, a passive and an active one. To have a purpose can mean to be made to serve a particular function. It can also mean to do something deliberately, with an aim in mind. In our society, there is a strange back and forth between these two senses when it comes to human lives. Human lives tend to be treated in one of these two ways. In some times and places, people treat human lives as having a purpose primarily in the first sense. Humans exist for a particular function, and it is their job to fulfill it. This can be the case, especially in times of crisis or scarcity or under a strongly ideological regime. On the other hand, in places that see themselves in continuity with the Enlightenment, this sense is strongly attacked to say that human life has a purpose in this sense is to assume that it is something predetermined, directed towards a function that is decided and ultimately realized by someone else. But humans. So the inheritors of the Enlightenment, argue, are distinguished precisely by being ends in themselves, not by fulfilling others, even God's goals. Since the Enlightenment, therefore, many people have thought that what distinguishes human life is precisely that it has a purpose in the second sense, that we of all living things are not merely determined by our nature, which constrains us to follow certain life patterns, but free to adopt purposes or intentions and to pursue them. Whereas nature is determined by causality, they argue, the will or spirit directs itself by intention. One form in which this understanding came to a head is of course in existentialism, a sense that life must be wrested from the intrinsic meaninglessness of nature by acts of will and purpose. The curious thing is that in our own time, right now, this second sense of human purpose, which is so fundamental to the modern West, turns out very easily to flip into its opposite. It erodes itself from within. For a long time now, we have come to suspect, as expressed so forcefully, for example, by Richard Dawkins, that what we regard as our own personal desires and goals, are in fact genetically coded mechanisms for the perpetuation of our genetic material, mechanisms for survival and propagation, which have little to do with will or personality as we experience them. At the same time, especially since the aggregation of big data, we have become more and more aware of the ways in which these desires and instincts, which guide people in choosing their so-called purposes, can be conditioned and manipulated by external forces. In other words, the Western dream of humans as self-determined, free to create and choose the purposes that they pursue, seems more and more like an illusion which is thrown up by our own subpersonal instincts and desires, which can in turn be manipulated by those who crack their codes and learn how to trigger our desires, fears, and disgusts. Much of our economy is intended to serve the wishes of the consumer, and yet these wishes are themselves constantly manipulated by the system which is meant to serve them. Similarly, our political systems are in large part meant to ensure the flourishing of those whom they protect, and yet they manipulate feelings of fear, resentment, and rivalry to dictate what counts as flourishing. One of the dilemmas that we end up with in this situation is a painful sense of contradiction between our experience of ourselves and how we seem in fact to work. We are at risk of thinking that the way that we experience the world, what we regard as our own wishes, our own purposes and decisions, is fundamentally illusory. That behind it all are subpersonal and superpersonal forces that manipulate us like puppets on a string. This is the vision of reality played out in films like The Matrix. But the films, though portraying an escape from the invisible matrix of manipulation, may, of course, themselves be another layer of manipulation playing on our instinctive desires for truth and freedom for the sake of box office earnings. On the one hand, this painful sense of contradiction between our experience of ourselves and what seems to lie behind it seems inescapable. On the other hand, it is unlivable. I think that the acute and overwhelming mental health crisis in the Western world is in part the result of a sense of life as unlivable, as fundamentally at odds with itself. What do we do? Perhaps the first thing to say is that we must remember that the desire for truth is itself a form of evidence. Even if manipulation were endless, The fact that we cannot bear to think that we are fundamentally deceived, even if that deception should be advantageous to us, is itself evidence that manipulation and deception are parasitic on something that they can neither replace nor control, namely a desire for truth. Even if truth is not accessible, the desire for it is the prerequisite of anything which we call thinking. I therefore think that humans are fundamentally deceivable, but that this deceivability is itself an indication of an ineradicable orientation towards truth, without which the concept of deception, which must contrast with reality the same way that lying contrasts with truth, would not make sense. Without a native idea of truth, we cannot speak of deception, And without a native desire for truth, we cannot be bothered by it. I would go so far as to say that it is part of what it means to be human, to orientate oneself willingly towards a reality or truth beyond oneself. This is nothing at all new. Philosophers from Plato to Sokolovsky have argued it. Of course, it assumes special urgency in societies like ours, where the coherence of the concept of truth is in question. It also raises the big question, a point of contention throughout the history of philosophy, whether the reality or truth towards which we orient ourselves is ultimately friendly, indifferent, or inimical to humans. On the response to this question hangs the answer to the great ethical question, how should we then live? Now, it is noteworthy, that in most of the great philosophical and ethical systems, reality is seen as either indifferent or in some sense inimical to humans. And this is either because humans are in some sense alien to the rest of reality, or because they, for better or worse, are enemies to it. The ethical imperative that results from this is either to accommodate ourselves to this fact or or to transcend or redeem it in the light of some higher reality, which might not be immediately apparent either in the world around us or in ourselves. If reality is, as the Stoics maintained, indifferent to humans, then humans must learn to face that truth, not to expect more of reality than it can give, and to comport themselves with dignity and apatheia, or indifference, A virtue that is learned in some sense from reality's own indifference. If reality is, as Plato maintained, a swirl of phenomena, both concealing and revealing a non-personal and eternal realm of forms, ideas, or noumena, then humans must turn to contemplate that realm and conform themselves to it as best they can, even though this means shedding some of what we think makes them human specifically human, attachment to particular things and people, individuality and so forth. If, as in the Gnostic developments of Neoplatonism, ordinary reality doesn't in any sense reveal the noumena but is inimical to them, then humans must reject ordinary mores and attachments and orient themselves radically away from the structures of the world. So these are some some of the options for the great ethical or philosophical systems of how we deal with the gap that we perceive between what humans are and what the world is. In all these cases the purpose of life beyond the provision for our basic needs is dictated by a sense one that reality has a particular shape or quality two that humans are not merely at one with it and three, that we therefore have a task either to accommodate ourselves to it or to oppose, overcome, transcend, or redeem it in light of a truth shed either by a visible reality itself or by a higher reality, not immediately visible or even not yet formed. Think of the great cycles of myths, the great works of art and literature, Wagner's operas. What is troubling about our own era is that the opposition or alienation between humans and reality is not being confronted, but dissolved, either into sheer human mastery, where everything else is merely raw material for us, or into a sense of humans as nothing other than the material fabric of reality, any opposition or alienation being mere illusion, In other words, the rift runs not between us and reality, as in the older systems, but between our own perception of ourselves and the reality of ourselves. We can talk about this more at Q and A. Now, what of Christianity? In Christianity, In Christianity, the purpose of life is a complex matter. In some sense, it is very simple. Our purpose comes from having been created out of love by a God who is a simple act of love constituted by a trinity of persons. We therefore believe that fundamentally, we humans, the world in which we live, and the reality that grounds or lies behind that world, are in harmony. The world, including us humans, is fundamentally good because its creation was the good purpose of a God whose own nature teaches us what goodness is. You can see this uh, in this beautiful image of the mystic nativity, where the heavens are opened and the angels are dancing, and heaven and earth embrace uh, in the birth of the Christ child. Humans, on this view, are created in God's own image, participating to some extent in his love and goodness. Out of these basic matters of fact, arises the basic and very simple purpose of human life, which the Westminster Catechism summarizes as follows. Question one, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Firstly, we are to glorify God. To do so is to declare and align ourselves with the right order of the world. All the world is from God and towards God and finds its right orientation in acknowledging this origin and end in gratitude and jubilation. This is expressed beautifully in the prayers of the Episcopal Church in my country, Scotland, which include the following circle of praise. Almighty God, we yield unto thee most high praise and hearty thanks for the wonderful grace and virtue declared in all thy saints who have been the choice vessels of thy grace and the lights of the world in their several generations. To yield unto God most high praise and hearty thanks is a beautiful way of expressing the human task and to speak of the saints as being the choice vessels of his grace is to recognize those who fulfill this human vocation. Secondly. We are to enjoy God forever. The same prayer book says to God, O God, who art the author of peace and lover of concord, in knowledge of whom standeth our eternal life, whose service is perfect freedom. This prayer captures well that the enjoyment of God is the fulfillment of human life. He is the author of peace. He is the lover of concord. To know him is to have life eternally and to the fullest. To serve him is to be truly free. At its most basic, then, there is no conflict between serving God and flourishing, no conflict between doing his will and having mine. And that is because, as Aquinas says, the will is not most free when it is most undetermined. It is freest when it can follow its native orientation towards the good without restraint. Now it may be worth pausing here to unpack this slightly, though I'm sure that you're mostly familiar with it. In scholastic theology, there are two basic accounts of the human will. To understand these accounts we must understand what the scholastic mean, meant the scholastics meant by natural and non-natural human powers. A natural human power is a human power or faculty that has a defined nature or a natural aim for example the lower human powers also called the instincts or the appetites or the passions naturally aim at the satisfaction of human needs food shelter warmth etc this means that when these powers move they move towards predictable ends within the double description of purpose with which we started these powers or instincts have a fixed purpose within the human organism to acquire what the human body needs to survive. Now, the scholastics agreed that not only the lower powers or instincts, but at least some of humans' higher powers, too, are natural powers in this sense of having a natural orientation or aim. In particular, the intellect is naturally directed towards truth. This is not an ethical or a normative claim, but a grammatical or basic one to count as moving at all the intellect moves toward towards what it perceives as truth this is its nature it cannot orient itself towards anything other than truth because the intellect's function is to know and something cannot count as knowing or even seeming to know that doesn't aim at truth of course the intellect is obstructed in this aim in manifold ways both from within and from without but that doesn't change its natural orientation now The disagreement among scholastics concerns the question of whether or not the will is also a natural power. According to Thomas Aquinas, to posit a power without a nature is meaningless. For something to count as a power, as a motive force, it must have a natural aim, even if that aim is quite complex. But for Don Scotus, for example, this is precisely what distinguishes the will from all other human faculties. For unlike them, including the intellect, the will is what he calls a non-natural power. It has no fixed aim. It is, at its most basic, a power for opposites. The will may be informed by the intellect, as it is informed by the needs and desires of the lower powers. But the will itself is not beholden to any aim other than its own freedom to choose. In other words, the will is most free when it is most unconstrained by necessity, force, or argument. This leads Scotus into some difficulty when he argues for the desirability of heaven, because he acknowledges that in heaven humans are no longer able to sin. He regards this as a constraint on their freedom, And so he has to argue why it is nevertheless better for us and preferable than it would be to continue sinning. For Aquinas, the matter is entirely different. For him, the will, like the intellect, is a natural power. In other words, the will, just like every other human power, has a natural orientation. As the intellect is naturally directed towards truth, so the will is naturally directed towards the good. Again, this claim is not an ethical, but a grammatical one. To count as moving at all, the will moves towards what it perceives as the good. This means that the will is most itself, most free, when it is able to move towards the good with least constraint, both from within and from without, when it is neither deceived about what the good is, nor constrained in its movement by other forces. On this account, the ultimate end of the will is God, because God is goodness itself. We can even say that God presents himself to the intellect as truth and to the will as the good. The Westminster Catechism's reply, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, presents itself as the eternal, as the natural outworking of our created constitution. On a Christian view, as I say, This is the basic purpose of human life. However, it is complicated by two things. The first is sin. I don't want to say much about sin in this talk, though we can talk about it during question and answer time if you'd like. The second, however, goes beyond sin. It is that although the enjoyment of God is to some extent human's natural purpose, it is also more than merely natural and therefore more than we can attain by our own powers. Saint Athanasius famously said, God became man so that man might become God. He meant that by joining his divine nature to a human nature, God offered a means by which humans might enter into communion with God, might be drawn into the divine life itself. The possibility of this offer is anchored in God's own triunity of persons, at once distinct and inseparable. In other words, Christianity proclaims not only that humans should contemplate or enjoy God the way that humans in Plato contemplate or enjoy the realm of forms. Rather, they are to be drawn into his own act of love. This is what it means to enjoy God, to be drawn into the love out of which God created the world and which God is eternally, and in whose image, in the image of which humans are made. This is an end, or an aim, which by its very nature, humans cannot achieve by their own power, a transcendence of their mere individuality towards communion with God. The purpose of the Incarnation, on this view, was not merely to redeem what had been lost, but also to make possible what had not yet been attained by joining the human to the divine nature and overcoming the ultimate isolation of death. In the New Testament, this is most eloquently described in 1 Corinthians 15. You do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a physical body, it is raised the spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living thing, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Saint Paul suggests here. That creation is not yet finished, that humans are not yet what they are ultimately meant to be, that they should feel a longing to transcend the boundaries of their own individuality is not surprising or overwrought, but merely an intimation of their final calling. They are, we are, in many ways, still as seeds are to grain or as embryos are to uh, to fully born babies. But if we are not yet what we will be, then we also do not yet know who we really are. This has something to do with the kind of thing that humans are. Humans are created in the image of God. And for St. Paul, as for St. John, this means not merely that humans are like God, for example, in being rational, but that they are mirrors or reflections of God. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Now that Christ has been revealed, we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. But this transformation will not be complete until the eschaton. Thus, Paul also writes, now we see in a mirror, dimly but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And John specifies, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The vision of human identity that emerges from these passages has two main aspects. First, and most importantly, it suggests that humans find their deepest identity, not in autonomy, but in reflecting the face of God. As C.S. Lewis puts it, the duty and happiness of every other being except God the Father is placed in being derivative, in reflecting like a mirror. Our whole destiny seems to lie in being as little as possible ourselves, in becoming clean mirrors filled with the image of a face that is not our own. Secondly, however, this leads to something of a dilemma in this life. For God, who is the source of our identity and our happiness, is also a deus absconditus. He remains in this world less than fully revealed. In other words, if our ultimate identity, our ultimate purpose is to be drawn into the life of God, to reflect God's love, and to reflect his face, which is also the source of our own identity, then as long as we are in this world and God is at least partly hidden, as long as we do not yet see him face to face, we also cannot yet fully know or be ourselves. And the ideal of authenticity, for example, is therefore not an ideal that we can coherently maintain in this life in advance of the beatific vision. What do we do? One of the tasks of the Christian in such a world is to witness to the future without usurping it, to live already in hope and faith in that plenitude of love and communion which is still hidden. But which is our true home. The monastic tradition, I think, is an example of this. For what is the monastic life but a great experiment in renouncing all the common objects of human desire, autonomy, wealth, sexual union and offspring, and seeking one's happiness only in the invisible love of God, declaring that one can be sustained by it. In our own time, the works of C.S. Lewis, whom I've already mentioned, and of J.R.R. Tolkien are meant to help readers to catch sight of and hold fast to that hope. Narnia and Perelandra, for example, make the plenitude of heaven palpable amid our grey world. The most important way for Christians to live this invisible plenitude, which is already real through Jesus, is to love others the way that he loves them to reflect the beauty of each to one another in love and appreciation. This is an anticipation of heaven in more than one sense. For not only do we see others most truly in and through love, we also see ourselves most accurately in the mirror of another's loving face. This is because our deepest identity both present and future, is being loved. There is no I apart from the I as loved by God. And there is no accurate view of that I except as loved. And this is part of the significance of the church here on earth. Each is to be a little Christ, showing Christ to his or her fellows, at least in part, by taking Christ's role in showing them themselves as loved. I will end, since I have quoted him already, with a quote from C.S. Lewis's great sermon, The Weight of Glory, which is about this question. And it goes as follows. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. This, my friends, is our task, and I'm glad to be pursuing it with you. Thank you.
1: We, now, we can now open the Q&A section, and please, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to raise them. So we can either you can re- raise your hand, or okay. So maybe uh, Mr. Alexander, can you please unmute people who raise their hands to ask questions? Yeah, yeah, of course. I'm am, I'm am doing it right now. Mr. Emil is unmuted uh, already. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Professor, for this talk. This was remarkable. And uh, I don't know, like, because I have, like, still, like, kind of uh, trying to get my thoughts, but I very much like how you went from philosophy to theology. And this is my thing, because, like, in academia, we tend to, I would say, artificially separate the two versus, like, Gilson said that in uh, Thomas, it was not uh, Saint Thomas, uh, Saint Thomas didn't care about it. He was a theologian first. So even today at the lecture, I said, if I was, if, if I had to choose between being philosopher, I cannot go to theology or theologian that can go into philosophy. I'm becoming a theologian. <laughs> however, however, you see, like, there is one thing that, like, I, I followed, like, with uh, such a, uh, it was remarkable. And that, but uh, there is this whole thing about the nature, the, the nature of this world, right? And uh, because you said, like, uh, that uh, us as a human being and related to the nature. And like recently, I hardly memorize anything, but I memorize this Aristotle Aristotle said that the life of the virtue is not uh, by nature, but it's not contrary to nature. And I think here he, here he intuitively points to the original sin that he, he took the reason to, to the, to the end, so to say. But without revelation, he couldn't really, uh, really grabbed it, but it, it is still very impressive. Uh, to what extent he went, that he because life of the you have to fight like Christ said he didn't come here to to bring peace he bring he came to bring sword when Saint, when when Saint Peter uh, tells him when he said that he's gonna he's gonna go to Golgotha and and uh, Peter rebukes him then uh, Christ calls him Satan because you you think as as man not as God so there is this tension because I know like the fear and metaphysics and in Thomistic reality is good. It aims, and it's very, uh, thank you very much for this comparison of Thomas and Don Scottis, you know? Uh, like, I, I, I'm not really that familiar with Don Scottis, but I know it's like a kind of on the, but, but like the, the reality. So my question, like, to kind of, I, I think you kind of get it what I'm, what I'm trying, what I'm trying to say. But this reality is, it's this dilemma that it's good, but at the end, at the end of some life of the virtue is a sacrifice, like agatha, a sacrificial love, like to, to end with, like, uh, Dostoevsky said, like we we have this uh, the idea of love, and Dostoevsky said uh, that that true true love is a harsh and fearful thing compared to love in dreams. It's not a lovey dovy thing. it's, it's has so like so like I I wonder if you if you like this whole respect to the reality being good, but at the same time there is a fight. There is this paradox so to say. I love J.K. Chesterton, so like like the man of paradoxes. So. Thank you,
0: again, thank you very, very much for this talk. Thank you. Uh, You've said a lot of really good things, and I don't need to answer all of them because um, some of them, you know, are are already very well-articulated insights. Um, I think that you're right that there is a tension to some extent between um, flourishing as already inscribed in nature, as being congruent with nature, and goodness being in some way in conflict with nature. And I think one way to look at it is to distinguish between nature as plenitude and nature as scarcity. In other words, in the world as it is, I think that what we experience, maybe most fundamentally, is scarcity. There is not enough of anything. There's not enough potentially not enough food for everybody, there's not enough life, Uh, you know, life always ends in death, there is always a sense of not enough. And so in order to protect ourselves against scarcity, we often have to come into conflict with others. So life is conflict, to the extent that reality is scarce. And so on that, within that model or within that circle, sin or evil is unavoidable because we are in conflict with each other and we take at the expense of other people. On the other hand, I think for Christianity, ultimate reality is plenitude. In God, there is not too little of anything, there is enough and overflowing of everything. And even though that fullness is not always visible in our world as we see it, it is nevertheless the reality according to which we must live. And so to live as a Christian to some extent is already to live in faith that ultimately there is enough. Ultimately, life is not bounded by death. We are not bounded by the demands of others. Um And sometimes that means... Uh, living in a way that will not lead to our natural flourishing because it might mean not asserting ourselves against others, but that's because we we believe in in a more ultimate reality which will will come true <laughs> and will be true.
3: okay, may I speak uh, All right yes, hello, Professor. Thank you for your presentation it was It was wonderful. I had a lot of things I reflected on it. And apologize. I, sadly, I'm an English teacher and I was finishing my class for the first 10 minutes. So if I missed my question, if it concerns anything that was said that I missed, I, I apologize. Um, now with regards to this concept of through experiencing God and becoming one with God, getting into that, becoming, entering into that communion with God more and more so that it is a completely unique aspect of human experience and this concept that at the eschaton you will have kind of a truly beyond a new man an unexperienced man and in a way an, an original man um well i do agree that's true couldn't we also say that there is particularly within certain trends of christian theology that this man this new man was experienced in the garden of eden and that this fulfilling of man While it is creating something new, in that great Christian paradox, it is also going to the oldest thing as well, in a way, because I study personally the uh, Karl Wojtyla and the metaphysics of Krompius and how they come together. And there is this concept that it is, yes, something new, but it's also fulfilling what is supposed to be, what is original. And I'm not saying that these ideas are against each other, but could we say that there also is this concept of fulfillment in a way isn't so much well, it is creating something new, it is going back to what what we are supposed to be. and with that, and a secondary thing, kind of a small little part from that, um we find it very interesting, as you said in the Christian monastic tradition and things like that, when people separate themselves to come to God and they try to, in a way, I don't want to use this term, but just for the sake of discussion, eliminate the ego. In a way, you have to go into the ego, in a sense. You have to step from the self in a way. And any comments on that, Professor?
0: Let me take your first one first. Um, That's a really good question. I think that you're you're putting your finger on it when you say that it's the fulfillment of the origin. Um the way that I see it in the garden of Eden at the beginning there is already the vocation to um union or communion with God. But I don't think that is yet fulfilled in the garden of Eden. And that's for the very simple reason that humans uh, as Aquinas says are uh, are intended by nature to be in union with god but they cannot by their own nature reach that union and i think that's very simply because to be drawn into the divine life is not something that anybody can do by themselves it has to be it has to be done by god And so I think that this, that the union towards which the human vocation was always oriented was not yet fulfilled in the Garden of Eden, uh, that it was only possible through the incarnation where God joined the human and the divine together. And I think that that's the reason why Adam and Eve were able to be tempted in the garden in the first place, because when the serpent says, eat this fruit and you shall be like God, The reason why that is tempting to them is that they have, in fact, that vocation to be like God. And they haven't yet reached it, which is why there's an incompleteness and a lack that allows them to be tempted by this promise. But what is uh incorrect or you know wrong about the way that the serpent promises it is that the serpent promises it promises um being like god in the sense of being autonomous like god having having their own knowledge whereas in fact the way to be united to god is through being drawn into a communion so it's precisely not by the way in which the serpent suggests it so i think that the that the human vocation is already manifest in the garden It's always what humans are oriented towards, but that the completion of that vocation, the completion of creation, in a sense, awaits the incarnation, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. Does that make sense?
3: Yes, it does, Professor. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Um, With regard to the second question, that's tricky. Um, I, I. I I wonder about that too. Um, I don't think that the sheer or mere negation of ego uh, should be an end in itself. Um, I think that it's really important to remember, as the Westminster Catechism puts it, that um, that the end of man is to enjoy God. And that means a fulfillment of one's self, of one's ego, just as much as an emptying of it. Um, And so I think the sort of the Nietzschean critique of Christianity, which says Christianity is clearly a slave morality because they pretend that self-fulfillment is evil and want to replace it with um, a radical self-emptying. I think that that critique reaches into nothing because it doesn't accurately describe what christians actually aim for it's not mere self-negation that we want um, it is a fulfillment of self it's just that we have to recognize that fulfillment of the self cannot be done um, either at the expense of others or autonomously from others because to be a self is to be in relations of love just as god's self is in relations of love and therefore um, it's uh, the ego cannot simply assert itself over others.
3: Yeah, that's that's one point I, I I really like to be stressed, because in that way, it is because when you do hear people speak uh, and there, there are some trends of this within Christianity um, about complete elimination of the self that for me, whenever I hear it. I studied Buddhism for a long time. And, I, and Naturally, I start to think, oh, this is who tried to achieve heaven or nirvana. And you're right. Exactly. And I think it's beautifully reflected by the word communion, you know, this idea of coming together, that in a way, it isn't the elimination of the self, but rather the coming together. And yes, exactly. Thank you so much. You. We're on the same page
0: then. Good. Thank you.
4: So can I speak? My question has to do from the beginning of your of your speech, I, I I like the thesis you you proposed there about truth, and the human mind or the intellect and the mind are oriented or directed towards truth and uh, and goodness respectively. So, what my question is: this truth is it a divine truth or just truth? And if it is a divine truth, and as we said to you said too that then uh, we have a vocation or we have a like a vocation or a duty to propagate this truth or to reach out to, to, to this truth, then what should be our proper response as Christians, particularly when we face theories or ideologies that are directly against what we believe to, to be to be truth, like in the case of uh, liberalism, in the case of uh, yeah, uh, in the case of liberalism, in the case of uh, relativism, and particularly political ideologies that seems to be directly against uh, truth of religion. What do you think?
0: That's a good question. Um, I I think that ultimately, ultimately there is no difference, but also a great difference between divine truth and Natural truth. Um, on the one hand, I think that all all natural, factual truth is ultimately at one. It's at one with itself, and it's at one with divine truth. Uh, I also think, however, that just as we were saying before, there is a sense in which reality, as we perceive it, is always marked by conflict and by scarcity, whereas reality. In the sense in which we believe it to be true, ultimately, is not is not marked by any conflict or scarcity, and so I think that many of the dominant ideologies are based on a vision of reality as dominated by conflict. Um, and so, in those situations, on the one hand, we need to defend the truth, um, however we find it, and we need to speak out against. Ideologies that are clearly in conflict with any kind of truth, um, ideologies in which, um, sheer naked wills contend with each other, um, and no truth is acknowledged. But on the other hand, we also have to recognize that there are some ways in which the truth that we proclaim cannot be seen or believed without a belief in God. Um, and those are points at which we are then called to to talk to people um, and to, to see how far we can lead them on the path of acknowledging that that the world might be more than is merely visible. But I think that's an individual journey that we have to take with each other as we encounter each other.
4: Thank you very much. I'm glad. I'm glad you answered the question very 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 well. but if I may ask again and uh, just a little bit more on that too, where do you think for us today the search for this truth must begin or should should begin? Is it in the instinct or, or just just um, let's say was it just within the instinct or or in the context of uh, revelation?
0: Well, I think ultimately we can't do without revelation. Um, there's nothing that replaces revelation. And so that is where we have to end up, at least. Um, I think that we can start elsewhere. I think that um, the, the kind of thing that I was talking about at the beginning of the lecture, the sense of our own lives as we currently, as our dominant ideologies describe them, as being unlivable that's a good place to start. I think it's always worthwhile to confront the systems in which we live and find where there are the points of tension or of unlivability, which which show where the problems with a particular system lie from within. And then one can start to ask questions. And those questions. I think ultimately can only be answered by revelation, but we can start asking the right questions by finding where the where the points of tension of unlivability um, in in the systems in which we live lie.
1: So thank you very much for the talk. It was very interesting, and I'm just I'm curious how would you uh, how would you accommodate the problem of evil as a main problem against the existence of God, or at least to be. Existence of a benevolent uh, all-powerful God, as I'm sure you're familiar with the versus dilemma. So how would you accommodate this problem uh, into uh, your view of a good world designed by a good God? And uh, uh, I'm familiar of course with some responses to this to this problem, but I'm interested in your view and how, and how it particularly affects the purpose of man in a good world? Supposedly, good
0: world. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Well, I'm. I have. I have two. I have two perspectives on this, um, which which are complementary. The one is, of course, uh, the question of sin and uh, of death and scarcity, and we can talk about that a little bit. Um, later, but I think the more important perspective that I would like to emphasize is one that goes hand in hand with what I was saying before about deceivability, uh, and about the way in which the fact, even if we are being deceived, yet that, that deceivability itself is a witness to something like the truth. I think in a similar way, um, God is certainly, I'm sure, the, the solution to the problem of evil. However, I think that it's more important to remember that only because of a belief in God is the problem of evil possible in the first place. In other words, it's only because, uh, or at least one of the ways in which we are able to perceive the problem of evil as a problem rather than merely as a fact of life, um that 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 we can believe in God. So I remember I was I was at a podium discussion a few years ago between Rowan Williams and Richard Dawkins uh, in Oxford. And there was a woman in the audience who raised the question and said, how do the two of them deal with the uh with the evil of a child that is prematurely that prematurely dies? And Richard Dawkins said, there is no problem here. This is merely natural selection asserting itself. The woman might be sad, but in the grand scheme of things, we cannot talk about a problem. Everything is working fine. And that was, exactly, that was exactly the point that without belief that there is some standard of goodness that doesn't merely come from what we can infer from processes of natural selection, we cannot even make sense of our instinct that there is something evil or wrong that is at work here. And so I think um, we can we can ask the question after that of how does how do we reconcile this uh, world in which there is evil with a good God? But I think we have to recognize first that the very sense of evil is dependent on uh, a standard or a reality of goodness that's outside of uh, just itself. As far as, um, as far as the, the actual, the presence of evil and the goodness of God is concerned, I think, uh, I'm, it, I feel very strongly that, uh, that there is a need to wait for the eschaton, um, that the, that goodness will work backwards, uh, in a way that we cannot yet quite perceive. Just as in, in the eschatological perspective, we are in some sense nothing more than seeds or embryos right now. And so I'm quite reluctant to try to reconcile things to each other as they appear now, um, because there is yet an end to wait for.